Today is the clash of the titans. In one corner we have Paul. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles and writer of two-thirds of the New Testament. And in the other corner, we have Peter, also known as Cephas. He's the apostle to the Jews and personal disciple of Christ. Arguably the two greatest witnesses for the gospel in history come to a heated confrontation with one another. The implications of this encounter are huge, huge for us. Let's look at it together in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 16. Again, you can go to ljc.life and the, the passage is on there and also the, there's an outline there and you can take notes on that outline. It's pretty neat if you haven't checked that out. So you can go to ljc.life and take notes on the message this evening. So let's look at Galatians 2, 11 through 16 together. This is Paul writing. He says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith. In Jesus Christ so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified let's pray together father thank you for bringing us here this evening to honor you and your Son and your Spirit together as your blood-bought children. We want to honor you and serve you in everything that happens tonight and moving forward. But we know, Father, we will need your Spirit to do that. And so we are asking you, Father, for your Holy Spirit to move in this place right now. And move in our hearts, because without, without your Spirit, Father, we can do nothing. We can do nothing in our own strength. Please, give us your Spirit, so that he might take us to Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what is so eye-opening about this passage? A lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of eye-opening things about it, but uh, one of the things that is truly eye-opening is that it shows us that absolutely anyone, anyone can be tricked by false teaching. 
Even someone who walked with Jesus for three years. Even someone who Christ himself said he would build his church upon. Peter has been suckered by false teachers. Look at verses 12 through 13. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So it's not just Peter. Even Barnabas has been led astray by these false teachers. If you didn't know, Barnabas discipled the man who wrote this letter. Barnabas discipled Paul, and yet he's been suckered too. Paul explains this specific issue quite simply. And here it is. Here's the problem. Peter had changed his eating habits. Peter changed his eating habits. You see, he used to eat with Gentiles. And now, he only eats with Jews. Now, to a first century Jew, far more shocking than Peter stopping eating with Gentiles would have been the fact that he started eating with them in the first place. Right? Because Jews did not eat with Gentiles under any circumstances. They did not do it. Because Jews considered Gentiles unclean. Okay, so what's the big deal? Like, why is Paul so red-faced over who Peter eats with? Right? It's like, Paul, chill, man. Why is he so upset? Well, it's because this isn't really about Peter's eating habits. This is about the principal teaching of the Christian faith. Now, remember from a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, what these false teachers uh, were teaching, right? This circumcision group, uh, as verse 12 names them, the circumcision group. What does that mean? Well, they were, they were Jews who had converted to Christianity, but had kind of created this mix mash of the two, right? So they were okay with Jesus. They were okay with the cross and the resurrection and all that. They were, they were super cool with all that. And, and they would preach that. They would preach belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. They had no problem with that. But what they also taught was that you had to bring the Jewish customs in also still. Right? So you didn't do away with any of the Jewish customs. You had to bring all of that in with your new belief in Christ. Right? Uh, and then Paul, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Paul was upset with them not only because they were preaching this kind of Jewish-slash-Christianity-type message, but they said that they had reversed the order of the gospel, remember? So the gospel says, I am loved and accepted by Christ, therefore I obey. But these, the circumcision group was reversing the order, right? 
they were saying, no, no. I obey. Therefore, I'm loved and accepted by Christ. They reversed it. See? I obey all of the Jewish customs. And then, I'm loved and accepted by Christ. And so, this passage shows us three things. It shows us the danger how to confront the danger, and the power to face the danger every day. The danger, how to confront the danger, and the power to face the danger every day. You see, there is a danger that all Christians face every minute of every day, and it can crush us. It can crush us in an instant. And Peter has just been crushed by it. And Peter is obviously a pillar of the early church. And so Paul must do something about this quick and in a hurry. He must do something about this. Because he can't risk anybody following in Barnabas or Peter's footsteps. He can't risk it. And so here's the danger that Christians face every day, every minute of every day. It's trying to justify ourselves with works. It's reversing the gospel. It's thinking I'm accepted and loved by Christ because of my church attendance, because of how much money I put in the plate, because I smiled and waved at my neighbor, how much I gave to hurricane relief, etc., etc. It's, it's, it's thinking that that is what sets our place in the kingdom is our works and it will crush us that's what was happening to Peter he started believing the circumcision group that he was justified by his observance of the law if an apostle Peter for goodness sake can drift back into works based righteousness do you think you and I aren't capable of doing the same course we are we drift back every minute every hour of every day and so how did this happen to peter well not long after the resurrection in acts chapters 10 and 11 god tells peter in a dream that all men black white green yellow all men are acceptable to him in christ God is trying to make it as crystal clear to Peter as possible in this dream. And so what happens is, make a long story short, Peter then starts eating and befriending Gentiles. He starts doing that. But later, Peter received this intense pressure from the circumcision group to return to Jewish-based works righteousness. And he gave in. Now, works righteousness had been drilled into Peter and all Jews since their youth. They'd been drilled into him. They were taught that their observance of the law made them superior to the Gentiles. It made them cleaner. 
than the Gentiles. And this racial pride was still lurking under the surface in Peter's life. You and I, too, have likely had works righteousness drilled into us at an early age. Act right, do right, be right, and you'll go far in life. That's what we've been taught. And that teaching is still lurking under the surface in each of us. And so here's what we need to do. We need to be continually asking ourselves, what is it about myself that I sometimes think makes me better than others or makes me cleaner than others? Is it my race? Is it my social status? Is it my achievements? Is it my religious beliefs? Is it my good looks? Is it my intelligence? Is it my work ethic? What is it in me that makes me think I'm better than others? For me, I've, throughout my life, I've shuffled back and forth through several different of those that I just mentioned. The current one that I really struggle with uh, is uh, obviously not my good looks. Um, uh, it, it used to be. <laughs> I try to tell my kids I used to be beautiful. Um, they don't believe me, but um, I used to be kind of good looking. But um, I don't struggle with that one anymore. Uh, what I struggle with now is my religious beliefs, right? So I've done a lot of studying. I've done a lot of schooling. And so I am easily tricked now into thinking that my, all of my education, all of my schooling, and all of my reformed doctrinal views make me better than those in other denominations. And I have this tendency to look down my nose at others in those denominations or, or those who think differently than me. And that's what happens when I reverse the gospel. That's what happens. I start thinking I'm justified by my doctrinal views rather than by the blood of the Lamb. Now, for Peter, it wasn't long ago. <laughs> it wasn't long ago that he believed he could associate with Gentiles. But the pressures of the moment, the pressures of the moment from the circumcision group became too strong to overcome by his own strength. He just was starting to get pounded by these guys, and he gave in. And look, you and I are, you and I are getting pounded, too, constantly from false teachers, the false teachers on the news, the false teachers on social media, the false teachers in your family, the false teacher that is your own conscience, the false teacher that is the devil, right? We're just, we're constantly getting bombarded with the message to reverse the gospel, that Jesus's blood is not enough, that your works are what justify you. Your works justify you. Your works are what get you into a certain place in the kingdom. And that your works make you better than your neighbor. I'm as guilty as anybody in the room, I promise. So that's the danger, point number one. Point number two is how to confront the danger. 
when we see works-based efforts at righteousness happening in the lives of our loved ones or in our own lives or in the lives of those we're discipling, it must be confronted and called out. Look at verses 14 through 16. It must be confronted and called out. Verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. It must be called out. This is the center of our faith. The gospel is not really the center of our faith. The gospel is our faith. And so when we reverse the gospel, when we start basing everything on our works, then we've entered into a different religion. We've entered into a completely different religion. This is important. It must be called out. But notice how Paul confronts Peter. Notice this. He does not so much focus on the sinful behavior, but on the sinful attitude behind the behavior. Let's look at verse 13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. You see, rather than simply pointing out Peter's racism, Paul points out Peter's hypocrisy. Peter was acting like he was holier than thou, like he was better and cleaner than Gentiles. When Paul knew good and well that Peter himself did not even keep all the Jewish customs. Look at verse, uh, the second half of verse 14. He said, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You see what Paul is saying? He's like, dude, you think you're better than the Gentiles? You live just like a Gentile. You act just like a Gentile. And yet you're trying to act like you're better than them. Like you're somehow holier than them. You are them. You act just like them. This is a wonderful example for us. There is always a sin underneath the sin. Always. Always. Sin doesn't just come out of nowhere. It comes from somewhere. It's usually what the Bible calls idolatry. There's an idol underneath the surface that's causing you to sin. It's something that you've bowed the knee to. And maybe you haven't even recognized it yet. That's why this scripture passage here is so important. 
there's something underneath the service that you've bowed the knee to, an idol that you're worshiping that is causing you to sin. For example, there can be two people sitting right next to one another in church, and they're both struggling with the same sin, let's say lying. They both lie. Now, it's tempting to simply confront each person with the law about lying, right? To just say, thou shalt not sin. And you could do that, and you would be right. That is a moral law. But here's the problem with that. While it is true that that is a moral law, there's something much deeper happening. There's something under the surface going on. Both people are lying, yes, but both people are lying for completely different reasons. Completely different reasons. Person number one is lying because they are embarrassingly insecure. They're insecure. And so they're constantly worried about what people think about them. And so they lie to kind of puff themselves up in another person's eyes. Right? They're constantly trying to build themselves up so they'll exaggerate this story and fudge this little thing about themselves so that they will look better in other people's eyes. That's person number one. Person number two lies a lot also. But they are not at all insecure. In fact, they are the opposite. They're prideful. They think quite a bit of themselves. And they lie so that they can dominate others. They lie to make sure that other people know that they're better than them. They lie so that they can put people in their place to dominate them or to make them go away. You see how it's the same sin but two completely different idols underneath that's causing the sin. When you only address the sin, you're only pulling at the leaves of the tree, so to speak. You're just pulling at the leaves. And the problem with leaves is they grow back quick and in a hurry. They grow back quick and in a hurry. You pull off five and ten more grow back, right? You have to get to the roots in order to take the tree down. You have to find the idol. So rather than just asking, how am I sinning? We need to ask, why am I sinning? Why do I struggle with this? What am I bowing the knee to that is causing me to sin in this way? But simply getting to the roots is not enough. They must be uprooted. We need to know what to do when we get there, right? That brings us to point number three, the power to face the danger every day. The power to face the danger. There is a very common lie Christians believe. The lie is that God wants people to be good. 
that he wants people to be good. But he doesn't. God does not. Nope. He doesn't want you to be good. He wants you to be perfect. Goodness is not the standard. Perfection is the standard. Deuteronomy 6.25 says, And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as He has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Notice, it's not that if we are careful to do our best, careful to give it the old college try, careful to be pretty good at it. No. It's but if we obey all this law before the Lord our God, that will be our righteousness. All the law will be our righteousness. Jesus ends the opening section of the greatest sermon ever preached by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's probably another verse that's not likely to make it into many weddings or be embroidered on many pillows. Be perfect, as perfect as God. But what Jesus is actually doing is revealing the purpose of the law and the lie of moralistic religion. That we just need to be good people to get to heaven. But that's not what God's law says. God's actual moral law is outrageously difficult. It's outrageous. But what moralistic religions like to do, uh, like Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah Witness or legalistic Christianity, what they like to do is dumb things down. They seem super legalistic at first, but really, they've dumbed things down. Why? Well, because if your very salvation depends on your ability to obey the rules, then you want your rules to be very specific, doable, and clear. You want rules like, don't watch R-rated movies. Or, don't drink alcohol. Or, don't eat pork. Here's what you don't want. You don't want, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's what you don't want. And you definitely don't want love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. No, you don't want that one. I mean, 
What if my neighbor's a jerk? What if my neighbor is a member of ISIS? What do I do then? But that's what Jesus demanded. If your neighbor is a member of ISIS, Jesus commands you to love him, serve him, and pray blessings over him. Jesus doesn't demand love for God and neighbor. He demands perfect love for God and neighbor. Perfect love. So you might be thinking, okay, that's impossible. And you'd be right. You'd be right. It is not possible for you to have perfect love for God and neighbor. But it was possible for someone else. The truth is there hasn't been one second in your life or my life where we have perfectly loved God and neighbor. Not one second. But it is also true that there was not one second of Jesus' life where he did not perfectly love God and neighbor. Not one millisecond of Jesus' life did he not perfectly love his God and his neighbor. And we're not justified by our love for God and neighbor. We're justified by faith in Jesus' love for God and neighbor. You see, the point is not just that Paul confronted the idol underneath the sin. That's great. He did confront the idol underneath the sin. That's important. But the point is not that. The point is what he confronted the idol with. What he confronted the idol with. Look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? When I, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I hope you see this verse for how truly profound it is. This verse is a game changer. I've heard Tim Keller say that this one verse changed his life. It changed his whole thoughts about Christianity and ministry. I hope you see it for how truly profound it is. If not, let me help you. Let's think together. What is the gospel? What's the gospel? It's the death and resurrection of Christ, right? The gospel is not a moral command. It's news about the historical events of Jesus, right? But how can we live in line 
with historical events. That's like saying, live in line with the truth of the Civil War. What? <laughs> How do we do that? What is Paul getting at? Well, let's think together. Paul could have just said, Peter, you're breaking the no racism rule. And he would have been correct. Or he could have said, Peter, you're a hypocrite. And he would have been correct. He would have been correct about that. But I'm going to ask you a question, and I really want you to think about it for a second. Would either of those statements genuinely change Peter's heart toward Gentiles? Would they? Would the statements, Peter, you're breaking the no racism rule, or the statement, Peter, you're a hypocrite, would they change Peter's heart toward Gentiles? I'm going to say no. Since a direct revelation from God in a dream didn't even do that for Peter. No. What Paul uses to uproot Peter's idols and melt his heart toward Gentiles is the gospel. It's the gospel. Paul shows Peter that the roots of his racism come from a resistance to the cross. You see, the cross is not just an historical event, but a profound teacher. A profound teacher. And what does the cross teach us? It teaches us that all races are sinful. And that all races are loved. And that all races need a Savior. All of them. Paul is telling Peter, Jews are no better than anyone else. Don't you know, Peter? Don't you remember the beating that he took? Don't you remember the lashes that he took? Those weren't just for the Gentiles, Peter. Those lashes were for you and for me and for all Jews. You see, Peter, none is righteous. No, not one. All races need Jesus. All races need his sacrifice to save them. Don't you see, Peter? We're all equals at the foot of the cross. We're all equals 
at the foot of the cross. And from what we can tell, this moved Peter to repentance. Because the next time we see Peter, he's eating with Gentiles again. It's not possible to root out sin or idolatry with the moral law. Now, the law can expose idolatry and sin. That's one of the main purposes of the law. It can expose the sin and the idolatry, but it cannot uproot it. We must heed Paul's words and see that though it is impossible for any of us to earn righteousness, to have perfect love for God and neighbor, there was one who did. There was one who did. And we must rely on Him and His perfect righteousness to justify us. Verse 16. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Only the gospel of grace justifies us. And only the gospel of grace destroys sin and uproots idolatry. And this gospel works for every type of idolatry and sin under the sun. It works for everyone. For example, if I struggle with pride, I run to the cross and I see and I remember that I am accepted and loved by grace, not because of how awesome I am. If I struggle with greed, I run to the cross and I see my Savior giving up everything to save me. If I struggle with insecurity, I run to the cross and I see how valuable I really am. Etc., etc., etc. So how do we grow as Christians? Not by beating up on ourselves with the moral law or by trying to be more disciplined or by getting a better accountability partner but by reminding ourselves of the wondrous gospel of our wondrous Savior every day every hour every minute An old prayer called the Valley of Vision reads, Holy Trinity, continue to teach me that Christ's righteousness satisfies justice and evidences thy love. Help me to make use of it by faith as the ground of my peace and of thy favor and acceptance so that I may live always near the cross.
Let's pray together. Father, what a Savior. What a Savior you have given us. What a gift. Father, that you would give sinners like us your very best gift is hard for us to fathom. Father, that you would give us Jesus, that you would give us your Son as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. It's unimaginable. Father, please forgive us for trying to justify ourselves by our works, by our race, or by our intelligence, or by our looks, or by anything else. We agree with the Apostle Paul when he looks at all of that and just says, It's all dung. It's all garbage compared to Jesus, because it is. It's garbage. It's garbage. If we have anything good in us, Father, we know that it's only your Son that is good. We have nothing good in ourselves, only Jesus, this precious and wonderful gift. He is all we have, and He is all we need, Father. Forgive us for trying to turn to anything else for our acceptance or for our security. Help us, like this prayer said, to always live near the cross. Give us your Spirit, Father. Help us never, never to waver from the foot of the cross. Let us live by it. Let us breathe by it. Let us just set up camp around the cross to see what our Savior has done. And let us live in line with that truth every day every hour and every minute. And it's in your precious Son's name that we pray. Amen.